Chapter Four, Part Two of A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve by William Wood. Chapter Four, Brock at Detroit and Queenston Heights, Part Two. Van Rensselaer, a man of sense and honor, took the expert advice of his cousin. Colonel Solomon Van Rensselaer, who was a regular and the chief of the staff. It was Solomon Van Rensselaer who had made both plans, the one of the eighth, for attacking Fort George and the heights together, and the one of the tenth, for fainting against Fort George while attacking the heights. Brock was puzzled about what was going to happen next. He knew that the enemy were four to one, and that they could certainly attack both places if Smith would cooperate. He also knew that they had boats and men ready to circle around Fort George from the American Four Mile Creek on the lake shore behind Fort Niagara. Moreover, he was naturally inclined to think that when the boats prepared for the eleventh were left opposite Queenston all day long, and the next day too, they were probably intended to distract his attention from Fort George, where he had fixed his own headquarters. On the twelfth, the American plan was matured, and concentration begun at Lewiston, opposite Queenston. Large detachments came in, under perfect cover, from Four Mile Creek behind Fort Niagara. A smaller number marched down from the falls and from Smith's command still higher up. The camps at Lewiston and the neighboring Tuscarora village were partly concealed from every point on the opposite bank, so that the British could form no safe idea of what the Americans were about. Solomon Van Rensselaer was determined that the advance guard should do its duty this time. So he took charge of it himself and picked out forty gunners, three hundred regular infantry, and three hundred of the best militia to make the first attack. These were to be supported by seven hundred regulars. The rest of the four thousand men available were to cross over afterwards. The current was strong, but the river was little more than two hundred yards wide at Queenston, and it could be crossed in less than ten minutes. The Queenston Heights themselves were a more formidable obstacle. Even if defended only by a few men, as they rose three hundred and forty-five feet above the landing place, there were only three hundred British in Queenston to meet the first attack of over thirteen hundred Americans, but they consisted of the two flank companies of Brock's old regiment, the Forty-ninth, supported by some excellent militia. A single gun stood on the heights; another was at Vrooman's Point, a mile below. Two miles farther, at Brown's Point, stood another gun with another detachment of militia. Four miles further still was Fort George, and Brock and his second-in-command, Colonel Sheaf of the Forty-ninth. About nine miles above the heights was the little camp at Chippewa, which, as we shall see, managed to spare one hundred and fifty men for the second phase of the battle. The few hundred British above this had to stand by their own posts in case Smith should try an attack on his own account somewhere between the falls and Lake Erie. At half past three in the dark morning of the thirteenth of October, Solomon Van Rensselaer, with two hundred and twenty-five regulars, sprang ashore at the Queenston ferry landing and began to climb the bank. But hardly had they shown their heads above the edge before the Grenadier Company of the Forty-ninth, under Captain Dennis, poured in a stinging volley which sent them back to cover. Van Rensselaer was badly wounded and was immediately ferried back. The American supports under Colonel Christie had trouble in getting across. And the immediate command of the invaders devolved upon another regular, Captain Wool. As soon as the rest of the first detachment had landed, Wool took some three hundred infantry and a few gunners, 
half of all who were then present, and led them upstream, in a single file, by a fisherman's path which curved round and came out on top of the heights, behind the single British gun there. Progress was very slow in this direction, though the distance was less than a mile, as it was still pitch dark and the path was narrow and dangerous. The three hundred left at the landing were soon reinforced, and the crossing went on successfully, though some of the American boats were carried downstream to the British post at Vrooman's, where all the men in them were made prisoners and marched off to Fort George. Meanwhile, down at Fort George, Brock had been roused by the cannonade only three hours after he had finished his dispatches. Twenty-four American guns were firing hard at Queenston from the opposite shore, and two British guns were replying. Fort Niagara, across the river from Fort George, then began to speak, whereupon Fort George answered back. Thus the sound of musketry, five to seven miles away, was drowned, and Brock waited anxiously to learn whether the real attack was being driven home at Queenston, or whether the Americans were circling round from their four-mile creek against his own position at Fort George. Four o'clock passed. The roar of battle still came down from Queenston. But this might be a feint. Not even Dennis at Queenston could tell as yet whether the main American army was coming against him or not. But he knew they must be crossing in considerable force, so he sent a dragoon galloping down to Brock, who was already in the saddle giving orders to Sheaf and to the next senior officer, Evans, when this messenger arrived. Sheaf was to follow towards Queenston the very instant the Americans had shown their hand decisively in that direction, while Evans was to stay at Fort George and keep down the fire from Fort Niagara. Then Brock set spurs to Alfred and raced for Queenston Heights. It was a race for more than his life, for more even than his own and his army's honour. It was a race for the honour, integrity, and very life of Canada. Miles ahead he could see the spurting flashes of the guns, the British two against the American twenty-four. Presently his quick eye caught the fitful running flicker of the opposing lines of musketry above the landing-place at Queenston. As he dashed on he met a second messenger, Lieutenant Jarvis, who was riding down full speed to confirm the news first brought by the dragoon. Brock did not dare draw rein, so he beckoned Jarvis to gallop back beside him. A couple of minutes sufficed for Brock to understand the whole situation and make his plan accordingly. Then Jarvis wheeled back with orders for Sheaf to bring up every available man, circle round inland, and get in touch with the Indians. A few strides more, and Brock was ordering the men on from Brown's Point. He paused another moment at Vrooman's, to note the practice being made by the single gun there. Then, urging his gallant grey to one last turn of speed, he burst into Queenston through the misty dawn, just where the grenadiers of his own old regiment stood at bay. In his full dress red and gold, with the arrow-patterned sash Tecumseh had given him as a badge of honour at Detroit, he looked, from plume to spur, a hero who could turn the tide of battle against any odds. A ringing cheer broke out in greeting. But he paused no longer than just enough to wave a greeting back, and take a quick look round before scaling the heights, to where eight gunners, with their single eighteen-pounder, were making a desperate effort to check the Americans at the landing-place. Here he dismounted to survey the whole seat of action. The Americans attacking Queenston seemed to be at least twice as strong as the British. The artillery odds were twelve to one, and over two thousand Americans were drawn up on the farther side of the narrow Niagara, waiting their turn for the boats. Nevertheless, the British seemed to be holding their own. The crucial question was, could they hold it till Sheaf came up from Fort George, till Bullock had come down from Chippewa, till both had formed front on the heights, with Indians on their flanks and artillery support from below? 
Suddenly a loud, exultant cheer sounded straight behind him, a crackling fire broke out, and he saw Wool's Americans coming over the crest, and making straight for the gun. He was astounded, and well he might be, since the fisherman's path had been reported impassable by the troops. But he instantly changed the order he happened to be giving from try a longer fuse to spike the gun and follow me. With a sharp clang the spike went home, and the gunners followed Brock downhill towards Queenston. There was no time to mount, and Alfred trotted down beside his swiftly running master. The elated Americans fired hard, but their bullets all flew high. Wool's three hundred then got into position on the heights, while Brock in the village below was collecting the nearest hundred men that could be spared for an assault on the invaders. Brock rapidly formed his men and led them out of the village at a fast run to a low stone wall, where he halted and said, "'Take breath, boys, you'll need it presently,' on which they cheered. He then dismounted and patted Alfred, whose flanks still heaved from his exertions. The men felt the sockets of their bayonets, took breath, and then followed Brock, who presently climbed the wall and drew his sword. He first led them a short distance inland, with the intention of gaining the heights at the enemy's own level, before turning riverwards for the final charge. Wool immediately formed front with his back to the river, and Brock led the one hundred British straight at the American centre, which gave way before him. Still he pressed on, waving his sword as an encouragement for the rush that was to drive the enemy down the cliff. The spiked eighteen-pounder was recaptured, and success seemed certain. But just as his men were closing in, an American slipped out of the trees, only thirty yards away, took deliberate aim, and shot him dead. The nearest men at once clustered round to help him, and one of the forty-ninth fell dead across his body. The Americans made the most of this target and hit several more. Then the remaining British broke their ranks and retired, carrying Brock's body to a house at Queenston, where it remained throughout the day while the battle raged all around. Wool now reformed his three hundred and ordered his gunners to drill out the eighteen-pounder and turn it against Queenston, where the British were themselves reforming for a second attack. This was made by two hundred men of the forty-ninth and York militia, led by Colonel John MacDonnell, the Attorney-General of Upper Canada, who was acting as aide-de-camp to Brock. Again the Americans were driven back. Again the gun was recaptured. Again the British leader was shot at the critical moment. Again the attack failed. And again the British retreated into Queenston. Wool then hoisted the stars and stripes over the fiercely disputed gun, and several more boatloads of soldiers at once crossed over to the Canadian side, raising the American total there to sixteen hundred men. With this force on the heights, with a still larger force waiting impatiently to cross, with twenty-four guns in action, and with the heart of the whole defence known to be lying dead in Queenston, an American victory seemed to be so well assured that a courier was sent post-haste to announce the good news, both at Albany and at Dearborn's headquarters just across the Hudson. This done, Stephen Van Rensselaer decided to confirm his success by going over to the Canadian side of the river himself. Arrived there, he consulted the senior regulars and ordered the troops to entrench the heights, fronting Queenston, while the rest of his army was crossing. But just when the action had reached such an apparently victorious stage, there was first a pause, and then a slightly adverse change, which soon became decidedly ominous. It was as if the flood-tide of invasion had already passed the full, and the ebb was setting in. Far off, downstream, at Fort Niagara, the American fire began to falter and gradually grow dumb but at the British Fort George opposite the guns were served as well as ever, till they had silenced the enemy completely. While this was happening, the main garrison, now free to act elsewhere, 
were marching out with swinging step and taking the road for Queenston Heights. Nearby, at Lewiston, the American 24-gun battery was slackening its noisy cannonade, which had been comparatively ineffective from the first, while the single British gun at Vrooman's, vigorous and effective as before, was reinforced by two most accurate field-pieces under Holcroft in Queenston village, where the wounded but undaunted Dennis was rallying his disciplined regulars and loyalist militiamen for another fight. On the heights themselves, the American musketry had slackened, while most of the men were entrenching, but the Indian fire kept growing closer and more dangerous. Upstream, on the American side of the falls, a half-hearted American detachment had been reluctantly sent down by the egregious Smith, while on the other side a hundred and fifty eager British were pressing forward to join Sheaf's men from Fort George. As the converging British drew near them, the Americans on the heights began to feel the ebbing of their victory. The least disciplined soon lost confidence and began to slink down to the boats, and very few boats returned when once they had reached their own side safely. These slinkers naturally made the most of the dangers they had been expecting, a ruthless Indian massacre included. The boatmen, nearly all civilians, began to desert. Alarming doubts and rumors quickly spread confusion through the massed militia, who now perceived that instead of crossing to celebrate a triumph, they would have to fight a battle. John Lovett, who served with credit in the big American battery, gave a graphic description of the scene. The name of Indian, or the sight of the wounded, or the devil, or something else, petrified them. Not a regiment, not a company, scarcely a man would go. Van Rensselaer went through the disintegrating ranks and did his utmost to revive the ardor which had been so impetuous only an hour before, but he ordered, swore, and begged in vain. Meanwhile the tide of resolution, hope, and coming triumph was rising fast among the British. They were the attackers now, they had one distinct objective, and their leaders were men whose lives had been devoted to the art of war. Sheaf took his time. Arrived near Queenston, he saw that his three guns and two hundred muskets there could easily prevent the two thousand disorganized American militia from crossing the river. So he wheeled to his right, marched to St. David's, and then, wheeling to his left, gained the heights two miles beyond the enemy. The men from Chippewa marched in and joined him. The line of attack was formed, with the Indians spread out on the flanks and curving forward. The British in Queenston, seeing the utter impotence of the Americans who refused to cross over, turned their fire against the heights, and the invaders at once realized that their position had now become desperate. When Sheaf struck inland, an immediate charge of the American front was required to meet him. Hitherto the Americans on the heights had faced downstream, towards Queenston, at right angles to the river. Now they were obliged to face inward, with their backs to the river. Wadsworth, the American militia brigadier, a very gallant member of a very gallant family, immediately waived his rank in favor of Colonel Winfield Scott, a well-trained regular. Scott and Wadsworth then did all that men could do in such a dire predicament. But most of the militia became unmanageable, some of the regulars were comparatively raw, there was confusion in front, desertion in the rear, and no coherent whole to meet the rapidly approaching shock. On came the steady British line, with the exultant Indians thrown well forward on the flanks, while the indomitable single gun at Vrooman's Point backed up Holcroft's two guns in Queenston, and the two hundred muskets under Dennis joined in this distracting fire against the American right, till the very last moment. The American left was in almost as bad a case, because it had got entangled in the woods beyond the summit, and become enveloped by the Indians there. The rear was even worse, as men slank off from it at every opportunity. 
The front stood fast under Winfield Scott and Wadsworth, but not for long. The British brought their bayonets down and charged. The Indians raised the war-whoop and bounded forward. The Americans fired a hurried, nervous, straggling fusillade, then broke and fled in wild confusion. A very few climbed down the cliff and swam across. Not a single boat came over from the petrified militia. Some more Americans, attempting flight, were killed by falling headlong or by drowning. Most of them clustered among the trees near the edge and surrendered at discretion when Winfield Scott, seeing all was lost, waved his handkerchief on the point of his sword. The American loss was about a hundred killed, two hundred wounded, and nearly a thousand prisoners. The British loss was trifling by comparison, only a hundred and fifty altogether. But it included Brock, and his irreparable death alone was thought, by friend and foe alike, to have more than redressed the balance. This indeed was true in a much more pregnant sense than those who measure by mere numbers could ever have supposed. For genius is a thing apart from mere addition and subtraction. It is the incarnate spirit of great leaders, whose influence raises to its utmost height the worth of every follower. So, when Brock's few stood fast against the invader's army, they had his soaring spirit to uphold them, as well as the soul and body of their own disciplined strength. Brock's proper fame may seem to be no more than that which can be won by any conspicuously gallant death at some far outpost of a mighty empire. He ruled no rich and populous dominions. He commanded no well-marshalled host. He fell, apparently defeated, just as his first real battle had begun. And yet, despite of this, he was the undoubted saviour of a British Canada. Living, he was the heart of her preparation during ten long years of peace. Dead, he became the inspiration of her defence for two momentous years of war. End of chapter 4, part 2